the How Could You Podcast. I'm Lauren Tossie. And I'm Ryan Tossie. As far back as I could remember, I always wanted to be a podcaster. <laughs> I see what you did there. I thought you were going to go with, take me to jail. <laughs> That would have been a great one, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast. Um, if you have never listened to us before, thank you so much for checking out our show. We are two people who fell in love at a movie theater and never quite left. We started this podcast because, as film fanatics, we realized there were some desperate gaps in our film knowledge, like me never seeing the Goonies until I was an adult. How could you? <laughs> exactly. Um, or... For one of us, the film we're going to be talking about today. So welcome to the season premiere of our season five of our podcast. Season five? Are you sure it's not end of season four? (sighs) (laughs) Yes, this episode was supposed to come a lot earlier than when you were hearing it. I feel like we've been promoting that we're going to be doing this and teasing we're going to be doing this one for about a year. We started... the person who had this fill, filled for their gap in film knowledge watched it a really long time ago. We've been researching it, and not because we really wanted to like agonize over the episode, because it was supposed to be the end of our season four. It was supposed to come after our interview with Jarden Films, um, otherwise known as Andrew Sterling McDonald and Jesse Calavota. If you've not listened to that episode, please go check it out. Two local filmmakers talking about their art. And then it was supposed to be this. And then... It didn't happen. (laughs) And then just end of year and COVID got in the way. (laughs) Yeah. And unfortunately, what happened was it just kept getting delayed, I think, between, you know, the kind of like that busyness right at the beginning of the summer and then very unfortunately getting COVID. Um, Feel very grateful to be done with that experience. And then, you know, we wanted to get back to this episode so badly and it felt weird to just drop it in the middle of the summer so we decided to just start off on the right foot with some gangsters and cocaine and all the good stuff (laughs) i feel though it's more fitting i'm glad we ended up season four with jordan films i felt like a better ending to that season that that we weren't gonna cap that yes and if you listen to that episode hopefully soon we'll be having some updates about the premiere of that film so exciting gangsters and cocaine (laughs) yes (laughs) just kidding (laughs) Um, So we are so excited to talk about the film today. Before we get started, we want to talk about a really special partnership that we have begun with Molten Media. Um, Ben Youngerman is incredible. Um, He is a digital media creator. Um, And if you've been really liking some of that new content we've been putting out on Instagram and Facebook... That's Ben. He's doing an amazing job. He's local to the Lehigh Valley. He works with incredible companies, which we're going to be highlighting on the podcast. And we're so excited to have started this partnership with him. Yeah, just an amazing individual. And and just in the the short time we've gotten to work with him, couldn't be happier. He's he's awesome. Just so so great. Yes. Uh, And also, that actually is a good lead in to talk about. We're now on YouTube, people. <gasps> so Lauren will have something else to plug at the end of the episode on what you need to go to. Oh my gosh, that's right. I'm going to have to add that into the repertoire. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, we're so excited. So right now we are just doing the audio only of our podcast. I think we're both a little bit nervous about adding the video component just yet. Um, but you can listen to our old episodes, any ones that you've missed. Help our subscriber count and our view count if you're feeling like that might be something you want to do. Um, but Ben created a really beautiful graphic um, and is putting up some like fun like screen grabs from the films that we're talking about or the posters themselves, which I always think is like a nice accompaniment. So please go check that out. I will make sure to link our YouTube page in the show notes of this episode as well. So as you guys can hear, there's a lot going on, like a lot. We're rebranding things. There's a lot of exciting new stuff going on here. Uh, 
Lauren over the summer. She created a great new uh, podcast space for us, which I, I'm so pumped for. You guys doesn't change anything for you, but you know, <laughs> it's it's exciting for us. Like, and we just have a lot of really great stuff on the horizon for the show, and and just really excited about. And one of the things I know we want to just mark to you, you know, our audiences. In the past, we had been doing ten episode, essentially ten episode seasons. Or last season, I don't know, four episodes? I don't even know. And we got to eat, I think. <laughs> yeah. um, but what we're, we've decided to do is we're going to go the route of a, you know, a TV network show where, you know, we're going to do our seasons from the fall through to the spring. So this will be season five, and season five is going to start right now, and we will take that all the way up until June at some point. Uh, and we'll have a break over the winter a little bit, you know, just like, you, you know, like I said, like old TV shows on network TV. So that's us, the movie podcast going the network TV route of seasons. (laughs) Those were the days. (laughs) But I know this summer, we've not spent a lot of time watching TV, but we have definitely spent a lot of time at the cinema and watching some things at home as well. Ryan Tassi, do you have a very special Tassi Takes Summer Edition? Summer Edition. So many good ones. We could talk here for, you know, a lot about it. Uh, My favorite probably has to go to Prey. Uh, oh, so not the theatrical release. Not a thea- I know, it hurt, because <laughs> I really was going back and forth between Bodies, 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 and Prey, uh, because I was wanting to give it to Bodies, Bodies, Bodies for being a theatrical release, but in the end of the Prey right now is up there as one of my favorite movies of the year. It is just fantastic. Check it out on Hulu. It deserved a theatrical release. I wish I had gotten to see it in a big screen. Just beautiful, you know, Lee Shad. The cinematography is amazing. Uh, the actress in it is, is phenomenal. She just owns the movie. I love what they did with the whole, you know, Predator aspect of it. So those who don't know what Prey is, it is a Predator prequel, uh, essentially. Uh, but just really cool movie. Really badass. Just just a lot of fun. Um, and I think, I will say it, it's, it's up there with the original film. It is probably the best Predator film next to the original. And some could argue in some ways better than the original. Um, just really solid and, and very exciting. Uh, so that would be my top choice. Definitely check it out. Even if you're not a Predator fan, you don't need to have the background in the Predator franchise to enjoy this movie or to go in and, and just, you know, it's, it's its own unique, fresh take on it while still giving enough nods to the original. Well, and I totally agree with you. And I, yeah, originals, uh, so many. Um, and it, it was just such like a wonderful surprise because Predator franchise, and listen, I'll out myself right here. I only saw Predator for the first time this summer. Um, and it was because Prey was coming out. And I think you kind of refused to let me watch Prey without yeah. seeing Predator. Um, and we'll cover Predator at some point on the podcast. So don't worry, that episode's coming. But I totally agree with you. I wonder... If there will be a theatrical release, because you're starting to see this really fun thing happening. Now, granted, this is really backed by Disney marketing and money of things getting re-released into theaters. Um, Spider-Man No Way Home is about to get a re-release. Rogue One, um, because of the anniversary and the upcoming uh, series Andor coming out, um, that's getting a re-release. So I wonder if there's enough groundswell or, like, dare I say it, Oscar buzz surrounding this film 
I wonder if you get something that's a re-release later on. It's really beautiful. And I think you capture what I think is really important about this film is that I don't think it's just for Predator fans, because certainly that's not the space I was coming to it with. I was just excited because I thought the trailer looked great. And there were some really mesmerizing shots. And I would think definitely some of the most beautiful things we saw this summer in terms of cinematography. Um, Mine is... I don't think would be a shock to anyone who's talked to me, or certainly if you've listened to this podcast for a while, uh, my film of the summer is Nope. Um, <laughs> like, hands down, um, like, without any hesitation. Uh, I love Jordan Peele, and I'm you know, not unique in saying that. And certainly if you listen to our Us episode, you heard both of us uh, talk about how much we love Jordan Peele's work. Um I was very excited for this film. I kept myself very um, ignorant of what the film was going to be about. I watched the teaser uh, that came out, um, you know, like half a year ago. And then I was like, well, I'm not watching anything else. Even to the point we were in Thor Love and Thunder with some friends. And I left the theater when the Nope trailer came on. So I was like, quite literally, nope, I don't want to see anything. I want to go in as fresh as possible. Um, I immediately know two things about this movie. One, I want to see it again in theaters. And two, I know I didn't pick up on everything. And that's what I really love about Jordan Peele's work. And we've talked about this before with other auteurs um, who, you know, kind of reward you for repeat viewings. Um, This is a big spectacle sci-fi western amazing film it's completely original um it's amazing kiki palmer rules in this movie steven yun and daniel kaluuya like it is just incredible beyond words and i i could talk about the movie for hours i may somehow try and ham fist how could you into this just so we can talk about this movie on the podcast (laughs) i loved it it's great i don't know though our us episode is not (laughs) (laughs) well that's true guys please go listen to the us episode it's a really great film i totally i I love your excitement about it because it was a, a phenomenal movie and i agree with you just you know the word kept they kept using was spectacle and it it hit that completely. Um, I know you haven't stopped talking about it since we, we left the theater that day. Um, yeah, just, you know, again, he just three for three knocked it out of the park. I also think I keep just having like random outbursts where like mid conversation, I'll just be like, blah, this about the film. Like I went to, I had a pool day with a friend and I think that's what we talked about for about 30 minutes in the pool. I think we were supposed to be relaxing, but I was like, let's talk about nope for like, five hours in the sun yeah and and the big thing i will say is go in by your don't worry about what you hear about it like go in and have your own opinion on it um and even with us like we we recommend going to see it we loved it but go have your own opinion there's a lot of talk about this movie and what jordan peele does is brilliant to me is he gives you a lot and doesn't give you always all the answers and i think there's something that doesn't always work, but this is very intentional, and I think it gives you a lot to chew on when you leave a film, and it gets you thinking and, and, and intertwined. It's just a really... He has a really cool way of, of storytelling, and I think, you know, what some people are finding as a negative, I think, is actually just a really big positive to his films. And I just, like, I don't know who put this, like, high price and value on having everything explained to you. Like, yeah. I, I feel like if you're going to see that type of film... You know the director you're seeing, why would you want everything answered? Then there's like no fun in that, I think, in a lot of ways. And not that I am someone who, you know, doesn't love something that's like kind of wrapped up in a neat bow. I can love something that's pretty formulaic. But like the complaints surrounding Nope, I find odd to me. But I also think it's just how you react to things. I think when I don't understand something, 
like in a film, I'm like, well, what did I miss? Because I kind of want to understand it a little better. And we've watched films recently where I'm like, it's not my thing, but I kind of get why someone would like it. I'm like, nope. I'm like, just give it a try. Like, don't listen to a lot of us. I'm glad you said that because it has been something that kind of irritated me. I'm like, oh, I hope that doesn't like dissuade people from like seeing the film. Um, But we're going to take a little trip back in time right now. We're going to hop into a time machine, speaking of sci-fi, and we're going to take you back to 1990. The year that... Predator 2 came out, just to stop. circle back to just that. stop. <laughs> but, I mean, it is a really great year, so we always kind of, you know, something we want to always kind of touch upon now is, like, what was the box office looking at that time of year, you know, or that year? And so 1990, it's a really good top five that year. Number one, you got Home Alone. I mean, that thing was just a huge hit. I mean, who didn't see that in 1990? Um, and, and who hasn't rewatched it a thousand times since right. 1990? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, and talk about, you know, one of the actors in this film just having one of the best years ever between, you know, the movie we're talking about today and then Home Alone on top of it. I mean, talk about being at the peak. And then uh, number two, we got Crazy for Swayze with Ghost. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number three, Dances with Wolves, which we will definitely be circling back to later in this episode and then number four pretty woman everybody's favorite family friendly movie about prostitution hey she's got a heart of gold <laughs> that's true and then uh number five one of my all-time favorites teenage mutant ninja turtles that was number five at the box office it was good for it because we love that movie that movie is amazing, and I swear <laughs> it should not work, but it is just a really good movie, and it still holds up today. I'll swear by it. Okay. <laughs> you go ahead and you live on that hill, right, Darcy? <laughs> I mean, we all do. It's just I didn't expect you to use those adjectives associated with it, but I can't say that I'm going to deny you those adjectives either. <laughs> I just get very excited about a movie that should... I mean, it's got rubber... <laughs> Ninja, you know, turtles, life-size turtles running around New York City, but it somehow just feels real and natural, and you, it works. But I think that's why it works, and, like, certainly we're seeing it now, like, a resurgence or, like, a real kind of, like, wave of support for practical effects and costumery and puppetry, but I think that's probably why that works so well, because it felt tactile and real. And not that, I mean, we're certainly not negative towards digital effects and special effects. No. Like, you know, certainly what, what is able to be done now is so incredible. But if you think about back then, if they had tried to do it any other way, it would have been such a failure. So going practical was of the time, but also probably why you can watch it today. And it still feels like, oh, that does feel like it's actually the Ninja Turtles. Yes. And I think I think a huge thing to it is they played the movie straight. Like, like, yeah, it's humorous, but they played the movie straight where they didn't do that in the sequels, where they leaned into the goofiness of it, the cartoonishness of it, and that's why you don't talk about those films as much as you talk about, you know, that one. Yeah, I know. Number five at the box office. Because I know, like, in great cinematic debates, playing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles straight has been a real concern <laughs> for film scholars <laughs> for centuries now. This is why one of us is going for their PhD, <laughs> and one of us is just riding the coattails, man. Stop. All right, so is that your favorite film of 1990, then? Like, I, if you're looking at the list? Well, it's it's up there. I mean, it, it, there's a good argument that it is. But I'm more curious, what's your favorite film of 1990? Do you have one? Uh, it's tough. I mean, like, definitely, certainly the film we watch for today's episode is, like, a hot contender. Um, Edward Scissorhands. Um, that's kind of immense um, misery. You know, there's a lot of great Stephen King adaptations. You've got Graveyard Shift and you've got It that comes out that year, although certainly like 
I didn't watch it until I was an adult, which just really glad for in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, you know, Pretty Woman's like a classic rom-com, but the, you know, the conceit is kind of tough. I wouldn't say it's like the warmest of rom-coms. There's like a lot of weird stuff that happens in that movie that I think people like to really disregard and just be like, oh, look, they get together and, they, and it's Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, J.C. Alexander plays like a level 10 creepo in that. Um, but you showed me for the first time not that long ago Tremors. I now love Tremors and think Tremors is the greatest thing ever. Um, but yeah, I think if I'm if I'm really thinking about it, it's definitely the film we're talking about today with a very close second probably being Edward Scissorhands. Edward Scissorhands, another movie that should never have worked but did. And I, I, we're all the better for it. Yeah, it's, a, it's beautiful and it's iconic yeah. and... You know, it's a really, it's like a hopeful story for weirdos. And obviously we're always down for that. But, you know, the The movie that we're talking about today, number 26 at the box office, which just feels like a shame. I I have to say it like the box. If the box office doesn't always when you look at it and go, that definitely does not tell the story. And time will always tell. Also, like 1990s, what was going on? Like, what were you doing in 1990? You weren't going out to see this film. Um, Because, you know, it's this plucky little adventure story of a nice young man named Henry growing up in New York in the 50s, trying to find his way, a sense of purpose. He's a first generation, um, you know, American. He comes from immigrant parents. He has a good work ethic. He wants to make his own way and find his American dream. And along the way. He, he gathers friends named Jimmy and Tommy, um, you know, gets a, a grouping of close, almost feels like family more than <laughs> friends, more than associates who are really weirdly obsessed with aprons and mail delivery. Um, and he just goes on all sorts of zany adventures, car trips upstate, little, <laughs> you know, you know, incidences with Lufthansa, you know, just really, it's a quirky little some film, <laughs> some, <laughs> some landscaping, you know, Friday nights at the Copa, Saturdays <laughs> are for the wives and, you know, of course, cocaine and jail and murder and, you know, really a bummer ending. Um, but of course, the film we're talking about today is 1990 Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas, arguably his best film. And I say arguably because I have a feeling people who are Scorsese fans can go rounds about which one should get that title. I would definitely favor this one. Um, it's classic. It's iconic. It's, you know, people have tried to replicate it. It becomes the cornerstone, I think, in many ways of Scorsese's career. I think we all think when he was winning for The Departed, he was spiritually winning for this film. Um, so I just have one question before we get started. Ryan Tossi, how could you have never seen Goodfellas? <laughs> You know, I I sit here across from you, and all I can say is, please forgive me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No excuses on this one. No excuses. Uh, You know, we talked about it a lot. This movie, you know, undoubtedly, there's always this weird Godfather, you know, probably comparison, weirdly, even though they're such very different films. Um, And in the fact of 1990, I know we're going to talk about how Godfather in this were really connected in a different way. Um, but I, I was never, like, I don't know why. I just never grew up with these, like, the mobster, mafia-type films. They weren't interesting to me. And, you know, when you bring out these great films, uh, it's hard to, you know, defend yourself that you didn't see it. So I, you know, I watched Taxi Driver. I love Taxi Driver Scorsese. But I didn't really get into, like, his stuff was much more later. And I think we talked about that during the Taxi Driver episode. Um, and this one, you know, 
I could joke about it and go, this is the film that, you know, launched a thousand gifts and memes, and, you know, this is the film that, you know, all I can think of is the, you know, the poster on, you know, a thousand dorm room walls <laughs> every semester at a university, but it's so much more than that, and um, I missed out. I definitely missed out on on it you know, all these years. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those films that like, especially I think like gaps when you have a director that you really love and respect and someone who is like as monumental in film history as Scorsese, it's always like interesting to have a gap. Certainly we talked about that with me with Taxi Driver, um, you know, cause my story with Goodfellas is I grew up watching this movie. Um, I don't know a time that it didn't exist. I can't remember a first viewing. It's weird. The Godfather, I distinctly remember the first time I saw it. Um, Goodfellas, I don't. I don't have a clear... I just always know. And it was one of those movies that if it's on, you just stop on it. You know, back in, I think, the time when we still had cable, um, it was just... If it was on, and even if it was the cable edit version, you just stop. Um, You know, because you know that no matter what kind of, like, segment of the film you're at, you're going to enjoy yourself. And, like, it's, it's just one of those things that's always existed. And because you aren't really into, like, like the mafia crime movies never seem to really, like, interest you. And I think because you had never seen The Godfather, which was this massive gap we had to take care of, I didn't really feel the need to push Goodfellas right away because I kind of thought, well, at some point, and they're totally different films. Saying those two, saying The Godfather and Goodfellas in the same sentence feels like, yeah, I mean, they're both about the mafia, but, like, they're completely different films. But they kind of get lumped because if you're talking about great films, films they tend to both end up on the list because they're so i mean they're so tremendous you know i think when you ask that question of like how could you you know the the basic answer and and the really the most honest answer is i just didn't think i would ever like it so Uh, i just never gave it a chance um i just really thought i'd come out and be like "Eh," you know and um i feel silly uh to say that and and really something we try to preach on this always is like give films a chance especially the ones that are considered classics um so you know shame on me for that <laughs> i do love the idea though just you and like having a family like i feel like you know it's wizard of oz and then in your house like good fellas <laughs> like, yeah everybody just around. once a year everybody got around at the and sat down to watch this family-friendly movie. Well, I mean, this is the joy of both of us having been raised by parents who didn't seem to understand that the rating system was right. a suggestion <laughs> of what your kids should I be allowed to watch. I find it to be all the better for it. Yes, because, like, what what it did is it exposed me to films at a young age that gave me, like, a different appreciation of things. And it's like, and the thing is, it's like, it's not to say I wasn't watching the things that were, like, being made for my age group. I did that, too. It's just, like, Goodfellas, yeah, it, I mean, I can honestly... It's weird. I don't have this most distinct memory of watching it as a fan, but I wouldn't have been surprised if, like, if my brother is listening to us and is like, well, we did sit down and all watch it together. I wouldn't be shocked because, like, it what, like, because I don't know, there's so much about this that's really entertaining. There's so much about this that's really violent and horrifying, but, like. (laughs) Do you, do you contribute, you know, your family, like, you know, that, that New York, New Jersey connection or, you know, just, it, it, just the fact that it was just a great movie. So I have no problem saying that in my mind that New York is the center of the world. <laughs> and when people, it's kind of like we recently had this conversation or not recently, it was like towards the end of, or the beginning of the summer. Um, you know, when you say the city, what are you referring to? And I think anyone who doesn't think it's New York is a weirdo. <laughs> yes. Like, well, it could be Philly. And I'm like, right. absolutely. 
absolutely not. It can't be. Somewhere our friend Paul who listens to the show is like, no, it's Philly. But he lives in Utah now, so he doesn't have a say in this. (laughs) But I do think there is a little bit of that because I think also like, so these films so get linked with, you know, New York. I mean, this film, New York culture is the same with The Godfather. But like, you know, if you think about like The Sopranos, like they did a lot of filming on location in northern New Jersey. Um, and you can drive by a lot of those locations. So I do think there is a thing. There's like that familiarity of like when they're, you know, I always think about this in The Godfather, like when they're going to the Feast of San Gennaro and they're going down that one street. Well, like my parents took us to the Feast of San Gennaro. So like, so yeah. like I can, I have memories of that. So it's like you link that. And I think that's like the interesting thing of like, I think about someone who grew up like in Oklahoma and is watching this, like there must be like such a sense of like association with New York in this. And like, and if you think about New York as the most popular character in film, like it's so like omnipresent in film. And like, certainly Scorsese helped out a lot with that too. I saw one time the actress Karen Gillan, I believe it was, and, and I could be wrong, maybe it wasn't her, but had posted about New York and talking about, do the films make New York more special or does New York make the films more special? I I thought it was a really interesting. It's the second one. Yeah. (laughs) New York's special. New York's everything. Like, you know, it's, it's weird. I say this is like, you know, I've never lived in New York city. I've most of my family was from New York and we go to New York a lot. And it's just like, I don't know. New York's just special. And like, even in this, like, you know, for example, when they're talking, when they take, um, when they go to the Copacabana, my grandparents went to the Copacabana. That's cool. Like, so yeah. it's like, because my grandparents... On Friday nights or Saturday nights? <laughs> you know what? I never asked and I don't want to know. <laughs> I'm going to real hope for Saturday. Um, or maybe they just always stayed in the dating space. Right. Of, you know, but like, I think like there's so many of those things. Like if you think about it, like you've probably just from Goodfellas or like just pop culture know of a lot of those places, popular clubs in New York, just because of kind of like, you know, how I think like, you know, almost like insidious like New York culture is to like American culture, especially American film culture, because so much gets set there. Or it becomes such a feature of so many films, even if it's not filmed there. So I think in that way, like that that comment that Karen Gillan's saying, I think is I think you can get a really romanticized notion. And actually, later this season, we're gonna be um, looking at a film that really romanticizes like New York City in that way and is a really beautiful character in the film. Um, but you know, you have something like Taxi Driver, where you know Scorsese's capturing New York in the '70s in a really you know kind of I think honest way unfortunately whereas this version of new york is showing kind of a a progression and kind of showing but i don't think really even invests in the city really being a character but you know you're in new york because of i'm still thrown off by you talking about our film later in the season because i realize i've been so caught up with work and things like that that i couldn't remember what our schedule was and i'm like ooh, that's a tossy's tease to me i can't even remember what the can I tell you, I did see terror in your eyes, and I'm like, does he not remember uh, what we're doing? Uh, no, I agree with you. I mean, that's, I think, obviously, when when you talk about New York and, and the directors that have just brought that city to life in on film, I mean, you can't, I mean, it's, it's always going to be Scorsese and Spike Lee, right? Oh, like, yeah. I mean, they are just the two. 
they're the giants in that way. Yeah. Like, I think it's impossible to think about film and New York and not think about Scorsese and not think about Spike Lee. Like, those are your two that really, you know, I think committed to showing different layers and sides. Like, I think you see versions of New York City, they're very glittering and glamorous. And it's not to say that Scorsese and Lee don't make the city look that way. But I think they also show like a level of realness that I think is important. And like, and if you think about this film, if you're like, okay, well, like it's Goodfellas, so there's so much exaggerated. It's like, well, there's not because I mean, this is based on a true story. Like this is a person's life. Like, by the way, and again, me just being, you know, a little bit <laughs> naive to everything and novice, I really didn't realize that this film was just taken from a true story. Like I was so in the dark on, on this. I'm just staring at you like, like, <laughs> you at this point. <laughs> and okay, and that's fair. Now, can I say I would be, I'd be curious how many people would fall in the same boat, even who had seen this film at some point in their lives, because like, you know, one, I think there's the nature of like podcasting where you do research. I think also the nature of being like film obsessed is you just do research post film because you want to know more about it. Um, I would think most people probably know it's a true story, but you might have some people who fall in the same boat as no, you do. I would agree with you. I mean, now understanding and doing the research, it's, it, it feels very much like, I don't know how I didn't know this. Um, I, I will say, as soon as I started doing it, I've heard the name, obviously, Henry Hill over the years. It, it was just one of those things of, like, I just didn't make that connection. And maybe because I wasn't, you know, like I said, didn't have a lot of interest in the mob culture, uh, the mafia aspect of things. So I don't know. It was just interesting to me. But I go back to what you said. I, I think probably most people, especially the people that have seen this film, recognize that it was a true story. I think I'm pretty much in the, you know, minority on this one. <laughs> Well, and which is fine, you know, so and if you if you're listening to this podcast, you're like, hey, I didn't know this. So this is based on the story of Henry Hill. Um, so this is a novel called Wise Guy that was written by Nicholas Pileggi, um, who was a journalist um, and, you know, a quite, you know, quite remarkable journalist and ends up going on to having like a really good partnership with Scorsese because of this film. So he writes this um, novel, which is his story, you know, kind of going from what we see in the film, you know, from the 1950s and him getting entrenched in in the world of the mob at a really young age and then kind of the rise to a lot of success, you know, his affairs, his drug addiction and his eventual imprisonment and then going into the witness protection program. So the film chronicles, I've, or sorry, the novel chronicles all of that. Um, I've never read it. Um, I'd like to at some point just to see how it's portrayed in that form. Um, yep. But Pelleggi, like, interestingly, and I think importantly, was really involved in the process of this film being made. Um, you know, Scorsese really wants to make this film. He So the novel, he acquires it, like, at a very early stage. He wants to make this into a film. He calls Pelleggi, um, and Scorsese very famously says to him, I've been waiting for this novel my whole life. And Pelleggi replied to him, I've been waiting for this call my whole yeah, life. that's pretty cool. Chills. Yeah. So great. And my understanding, right, uh, Scorsese didn't necessarily ever want to do another film like this. Um, but because, like you said, the, the, the novel spoke to him so much, he just felt like he had to. Well, and it's interesting to think about. Like, you almost, I mean, maybe maybe outside of Coppola, but I don't, I think there's a grittiness that Coppola wouldn't have achieved in making this film. Um, I think there's, like, aspects of, like, the drug component that I think Coppola, I don't think, would have made it as 
internal where you feel like you're on the really bad trip with him. Um, you know, I think in some ways, like he's such the perfect filmmaker to make this, but it's also interesting to think about, like he wasn't thinking about approaching this kind of film again, you know, cause up to this point, you know, Scorsese, I mean, like it's already like a giant, like, it's not like, Oh, this is his first turn. He's done taxi driver. He's done color of money. He's done uh, king of comedy. He, you know, so he's already, I mean, like he's established and that's part of what helps with this, but it was not exactly the clinching point to get this film made and financed. And do you know whose casting it took to get them to actually finance the film? I mean, my guess would be De Niro, but... It was. It was De Niro being on board that got them the financing. He didn't have the financing for the film, which is insane to me because of what he's made prior to this that he didn't well, have Well, and I think it's important to note, though, is up until The Departed with Scorsese has, you know, recognized as, as you know, legendary as he is, he's not box off, like, he never was a hit at the box office. Like, his films are critically just, you know, beloved and, you know, talked about and, and thing forever, but it wasn't until The Departed that he ever actually really had a hit. Which is, honestly, it's painful. I mean, like, Legitimately, like you think about the films I listed. Financial just, hit. Is yeah, what financial I mean by hit. That. You know, he also before this he does Raging Bull and Alice doesn't live here anymore. Mean Streets. Like this is insane to think about that this guy isn't considered like box office gold. And so it's wild to think about. But I think that's often discussed, and I'm sure as we will get to towards the end of the episodes, we talk about Tosca or not, like, but that he doesn't get his first Academy Award until the departed. Right. Like, what were you doing, Academy? Were you not going to the movies? Were you just like, Scorsese is like a blind spot that we're not willing to address? Like, it's kind of incredible that it took, like, convincing to get him to make this. You know, they did that. There's that uh, TV series that you can watch on Paramount called The Offer, which is all about The Godfather getting made. But that, to me, makes sense when they tell that story. Francis Ford Coppola was not a proven entity. Oh, yeah. You know, Mario Puzo, it was his first successful novel. That makes sense. But this, I mean, this is Scorsese. And he was already at his height before he made this. And then he makes this, like, incredibly remarkable film. So it's really interesting that you talk about that with De Niro being kind of the linchpin to make this happen, which I find, you know, fascinating. But also, like, I get it. I get De Niro's clout of why he would, you know, be able to come in and pull that. But what's interesting, though, was am I incorrect in that I thought that Al Pacino was actually considered for Jimmy the Gent? Or did I completely, you know, make a mistake on that? No, you're not incorrect on that. Um, you know, part of like what happens here with the casting and the financing was that the kind of the, I think, uncertain nature of this novel coming out and like what the material was. And as you've said, like, you know, it's not like Scorsese was box office magic. I mean, those critical magic. Right. Um, yeah, Pacino. But interestingly, Godfather Part 3 comes out this same right. year. So, <laughs> you know, there there may have been something with that in terms of like he was already in process. I'm um, also curious if that's really... Was he really ever considered for it, or is it just those two men are just so intertwined and linked that, you know, it's hard to... They essentially, anything... You probably could go through every movie either of them have been in, and they're probably like, the casting what-if is... And weirdly, <laughs> like, 
diff- totally different performers. Like right. we lumped them together, but they're totally different performers. But yeah, I think there was like Pacino was considered for this, mm-hmm. but it was De Niro being the solid casting because they felt like that's the draw. That's why he's featured so prominently on the poster and in the marketing materials. Oh, I wrote that in my notes. I laughed because I'm like, De Niro is, I would say maybe even third or fourth lead in this movie. Um, and he gets top billing, which I thought was really interesting. Well, and I'm I'm sure at some point I will give myself away as we're talking about the film and breaking it down section by section. But he's like the best part of the movie. Like, in May, you yeah, think no. you think Joe Pesci's the well, best I part do, of the movie? Yeah, but I, I mean, but I, it's one of those things I can't argue. I mean, De Niro is so phenomenal. I. I you know, it's something I, I'm sure I was expecting that we would talk about, but I'll just say it right up here. Like, that's the one thing I, I give De Niro so much credit to, to, to kind of take a little bit of a backseat on this. Um, but, but, but he just comes in and he just, you know, he's. You want to say he kills, don't you? He does. And then you, <laughs> you're right, like, yeah. too funny. I mean, he's out of 10 the entire time. Like, yeah. he, he just, um, you know, so again, we're, we, you talk about like this movie. Sounds like it, it almost doesn't get financed without him in it. So he kind of can do whatever he wants. And I know he had some some funny, you know, things with the money on the, the props and things like that. Uh, but he, I love that he just kind of, he takes a little bit of a backseat. Let's relay Leo to be the lead. Let's some of the other actors, you know, kind of take other, you know, really prominent parts. But when he's on screen, he's just still giving everything well and that's the thing is is like he's someone who every everything he does in a scene is obviously like so calculated so i think when you're saying like a 10 it's not energy level it's like intention level yeah yeah sorry and i yeah i probably and i think like when i think that's why like when he goes big it feels so impactful because like when his anger comes out and i think that's like the great thing about that character is it's like he's fine un- un- until you see, and then it's like, and one and once he does get angry or once he does have that big reaction, it feels like all the more impactful, which is such like a great foil to like Joe Pesci, who's operating as like a raw nerve the entire film. It makes it so right. great to have that contrast. I, say, I mean, the Nero's just quiet moments might be the most fright- frightening of his. Yeah, it's like, it's honestly, it's like me if I go quiet. That's when you know something's upsetting and wrong. Uh, if anybody's been more scary, just telling somebody, no, just, just down the... Just down the block there a little bit. Just make a make a read. Hold on. I've got thoughts about that, but we'll get there. So I do have to ask. So the first time you saw this movie, you got to see it on the big screen in the most beautiful theater. Shout out to Anthony DeSanctis for making this happen for us so that way you could watch it as it's meant to be seen. Yeah. How did you feel that first time watching the movie? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was very cool. I'm so appreciative of Anthony for giving us that that opportunity. I think he said to you, like, yeah, if he's going to see this for the first time, he's got to see it on the big screen, and I'm so glad to do it. Um, you know, see a movie on, you know, to see a classic like that on, on a big screen and, and everything. Um, so do you want the honest answer? <sighs> yes. The honest answer is the first time I watched that movie, I didn't know how I felt. Um, <laughs> I know. it, it honestly was a weirdly tense car ride home because like, so all right, a little behind the scenes is once we've watched a movie, especially if it's one of our like gaps, we try not to talk about it because yeah. we want the conversation to feel like pretty fresh by the time that we do. And it was like this weird, I'm like, I don't think he loved it. I don't think he loved it, <laughs> but I can't ask him about it because that's kind of what we do on the podcast 
the movie was much different than what I thought it was. Um, to its credit, which is where I'm going to get to here in a second, um, you know, one of the mistakes I made that night was trying to write notes in the theater having never seen the movie, I needed to just take the movie in and not be worrying about trying to write notes on top of it. Um, but also, I think the type of movie it is, and especially, most notably, the back part of the movie, the back third, um, and the ending, especially, I didn't quite... I'll just say it. I'll say it like this. I didn't quite understand it. Like, I didn't mm-hmm. see... Like, I thought it was like, oh, this took really weird tone. Different. It was The tone was different. The pacing was different. I didn't really... Um, so I came out and I was like, hmm, okay. Not as... I, I expected something, you know, brilliant. <laughs> that was on me. A hundred percent. That's on you. That's not on the film. But I will say, and something that has made me... So let me get to... We've now since, because we got delayed, we watched it again. Oh my God, was I wrong? This is one of Scorsese's, if not Scorsese's best. Um, it's one of the best films I've ever seen. It is amazing. I absolutely love it. Um, I want to kick Ryan at the theater's butt a little bit for not feeling that. Um, but this was a, this is why I always say I like watching a movie twice, because I think sometimes you just come in and you reframe how you're watching it, especially when you're going into a movie of expectations. I went in to see a movie, this beautiful theater, get it on the big screen. We're getting pumped up for our season finale episode, right? And this movie that's a classic, everybody loves. And I'm like, there's a lot of expectation. There's a lot of pressure there. Um, And I think that was a little bit of what was going on. I also was able to pick up on so much more the second viewing. I totally much more understood and recognized what Scorsese did and the brilliance of the ending of that movie and how good it is. Um, so, yeah, I was just... Um, absolutely, this movie's amazing. And I felt better in some of my research of this of going, I'm not alone on that feeling where a lot of people really... Uh, and that might speak to the box office where that movie was a little bit jarring the first time, especially that ending. Um, and so some people came out not feeling as, you know, positive about it the fir- on first viewing. So um, I know I'm not alone in that. That being said, yeah, just one of the all-time glad... I, I just... I, I just want to... This movie, I just want to scream how good it is. And I feel silly that it's taken me this long to see it. I, I don't get mad at you frequently, nor do I ever have a situation where I'm like... He's absolutely wrong. Although I do feel like I'm pretty, I always feel pretty well justified in my feelings. And I was like, I think he's wrong on this. Like, and I could tell you didn't really love it. And then I did get you to cop to it eventually. And the second time we were watching it, your body language just shifted. Like I could see there was just like, you were like leaning in and there were, you were reacting to things. And like, cause I realized the first time we watched it, I'm like, why isn't he laughing? This movie's really funny. And I was like, oh, and, and I never thought of it as something that requires a rewatch. But I think also that's because probably the age at which I saw it, I was I got familiar with the characters. So there was like a little bit of that, you know, that second hand that comes from like, I've seen this so many times, so I can kind of anticipate like what makes that moment funny for that character. And the second time you watch, I was so happy because I'm like, oh, he's leaning in. Oh, he loves it. And then we, it ended and you're like, 
oh god that's so great and i'm like oh thank you like because yeah. i was worried to you know not that like certainly we're not a hive mind we can disagree but i didn't want to have to disagree with you about this movie and i think we would have lost a lot of viewership if you said you didn't like goodfellas yeah i didn't want to you know well end the season or in this case begin the season on a movie that i may have come in ho-hum about because i didn't dislike it that first viewing it was just like oh i didn't know if i quite and I don't think, and I want to say, like, I by saying that, oh, I needed a second viewing, I don't think that's for everybody. I think it just worked for me. Uh, for whatever reason, the first viewing uh, didn't quite, you know, grand slam, but on the, the second time, yeah, everything hit. Like, all of Joe Pat, Tommy and, you know, what Scorsese was doing throughout the film yeah. and just the brilliance of it all just started to click and, and it was like, oh, okay, yeah, I see what he did here and this is this is really phenomenal. Well, and I think something that we're talking about and praising, you know, Scorsese for is that kind of inside feeling that so many of his films have. Like, you feel like you're put in kind of amidst like this group of people, these worlds that you otherwise don't know. And I think what's really great about that is something that in all of his films he does is he moves from this like, enchantment to disillusionment throughout his storytelling. So it's like he makes you, particularly with villainous characters, and this is something he does in so many of his films, like he makes you enchanted for them. He makes you kind of root for them, feel for them, kind of almost get in the headspace of, I know that this thing is wrong, but I can kind of understand why they're like this. You know, there's a sensitivity that he provides and a humanity that he provides to these, you know, to these gangsters, these criminals that you're like, I get it. Like there's this sense of they have to kind of protect their own. They have a moral code and he gets you so within, I think, that realm of like fantasy and enchantment of belonging. And then he just does this really great job of just slowly pulling that all the way and making you have to be like, okay, remember those people you were falling in love with? This is what they're actually like. And I think that can be a jarring experience in watching any of his films. Like you and I talk about, you know, there is a segment that we've added into our podcast called the holdup where we discuss that sometimes films don't age well. Like, you know, 80s comedies are honestly why we created the holdup as a segment on our podcast, because we knew as we would approach any of those, like, you have to kind of talk about the things that were incredibly regressive. And one of the things in this film is there is such a burden of racially charged and homophobic language that's used throughout the film. And it's really hard. Yeah. Um, it can be challenging to deal with. It can be hard to know, like, where am I supposed to place this? And I think Scorsese does this, and this is something that's been written about a lot, so I'm not inventing the wheel here, of he does this to remind you, like, these are regressive people. These are not heroes. These are villains. Their codes oftentimes are laden with antiquated and, you know, biased perspectives. And I think that's part of it is like, and you see, it slowly starts to happen more and more and more and more throughout the film where those things are more and more revealed to you. So it's like, as you're moving out of those segments where it seems like this glittering, oh, I want to be part of this family. It's nice. They protect each other <laughs> to these are scumbags that will murder each other. <laughs> and all of those loyalties don't actually exist because like the second one of them is in actual trouble and probably needs that backup. They're not really there for each other. So, so, like, 
I and they'll turn on each other very quickly. Yeah, <laughs> you know, especially as you've already hinted at what we see happen by the end with, like, Jimmy. Yeah. Like, I think there is in, something that Scorsese has always done so masterfully is, is putting you in, in, in this interior space and then giving you... It's almost like he puts you in there with candlelight and then hits the fluorescence. And all of a sudden, you now have to deal with where you actually are. Yeah. But that can also be a jarring experience the first time you're watching a film of his that you haven't seen before. Well, yeah, and I don't think I quite realized how 80s the uh, the back portion was going to be, um, which was also something... What are, you, what are you talking about? Did your living room not look like that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, again, not having a lot of background of this film, weirdly enough. So that was some stuff that was jarring as well. But I agree completely with you. You know, we talked again a lot about that with... with Travis Bickle and, and Taxi Driver and what he can do with these types of characters and, and how he, like you said, can kind of pull it all away after building it up. Now, there are films that I think don't always work. I think you and I both agree that Wolf of Wall Street doesn't quite nail that. Um, there are some that will disagree with us on that, but you and I are both in the same boat of, I think that's what he was trying to do. Um, I think I seeing this movie actually made me kind of understand a little bit more what he was trying to do with Wolf of Wall Street, but I don't think he nails it the way that he does with this. Yeah, because Leo's too hot and it's too <laughs> funny. <laughs> right. Let's all be honest with ourselves. Right. I don't think you leave ever really disliking Jordan Belfort as much as you should. Like, I think you still have this feeling of, oh, this guy lived an awesome life and he was cool and not as, you know, not seeing the seediness and, you know, the horrible things that he actually did. Yeah, he can dance. He takes quaaludes like a champ. He's married to Margot Robbie. Like, what am I supposed to dislike about this guy? Right. <laughs> you know, I think the other film that I, I kind of related with, it was Blow. And that's another movie that I don't think, now that's not a Scorsese film, but I don't think quite nails what he does in this movie, which is that, you know, that peeling back. Like, I don't think, I think at that end of that film, you're supposed to almost feel sorry for, for, you know, Johnny Depp's character. And it's like, no, you've given me nothing to make me feel that they were, he was despicable. Where I think, you know, I, I think Scorsese does enough with all of his, his main characters here to, to put them in the places that they should be. Yeah. I mean, like, by the time, or the 90th time that Ray Liotta has yelled, Karen! Like, <laughs> you hate the guy, because you were like, if I have to hear that name one what? more time. Why is he yelling at Karen about what she did with it? There was no way that the... <laughs> Karen, they wouldn't have found <laughs> well, Karen! What, do you think they just went in and were like, no. I flushed it down the toilet! <laughs> yeah, ha that... Listen, this is how you know drugs are bad. Because his judgment in that moment, I'm like, what did you think she should have done with right? it? They were... But also, Karen... <laughs> Why were you flushing it? It was all over the house. Like, they had him. There was nothing you could have done at that well, point. Well, no, I think she did get rid of most of it, right? They only got him because of the stuff at the, uh, at Deborah, um, I can't think of her name now. Debbie oh, Debbie Mazar's house. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which, again, and that stuff was ever, and he did warn her to clean up, which is, <laughs> yeah. which is fair. All right, but let's, before we go to the close, let's go to the open. So we open with this great prologue. Um, where we get to see the scene that ends up becoming the major turning point in the film. And like, you know, again, not saying anything revolutionary here. I just think that's so brazen and awesome to be like, I'm going to show you the scene that becomes kind of the important way in which this all gets disassembled right at the beginning of the film, but not tell you that's what's happening. And it's going to be a thing that finally happens at like the midpoint of the film and so much happens after it. But I think that was such like a great way. And that whole, the shot 
of them just bathed in the red light. I mean, chef's kiss. Such a brilliant way to start a movie. No, I agree with you. I love the fact that, you know, you have this soft opening, um, or maybe in this case, a hard opening. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I don't always love that when they, when films do that, usually they place that more towards the end. I, I agree with you. It's a, such a... It's, you know, to see that reframed between what you see at the beginning mm -hmm. of these these three characters and then what you see halfway through. And I love the fact that that comes up about halfway through the, fi the film. And it's like you said, all of a sudden it's the change of everything starting to happen. Well, because it's where the film, I think, become like you start to feel the gravity of what it what's about to happen especially once you've seen it once like you get the sense of like oh it's all like downhill from here like it's no yeah. longer fun once that happens and not because of that it's just you start to see more of like what they're doing and kind of the life that they're living and again it's that whole like exposure thing that Scorsese does um what is your feeling on freeze frames <laughs> I mean you know I mean they work in this okay right <laughs> because I feel like justice for freeze frames because in, in a lot of things, absolutely hate it. It's stupid and cheese. But in this, it's like it's always done at the exact right spot where you're like, oh, that's so good. Yes, freeze it right there because it makes you I feel like this is so much like fits and starts like it's like we're, we're running, we're running. Okay, wait, stop. Now think about this for a second. And I love how Scorsese like builds in those like intentional pauses through his freeze frames in this. Well, I think it's, yeah, I think he adds a really nice way to, to transition. Um, and I think it, it transitions tone. It transitions the story. I, I really think it, you know, he found a way to make it work and not come across as cheesy. Yeah. Now, when we get into like Henry's childhood, which is like kind of, you know, like that entrance. Brooklyn, 1955. <laughs> yes. Thank you for saying it dramatically. <laughs> Um, do you have a favorite scene within that section of like his youth has come up in this like organized crime world? Um, I mean, I had to laugh, <laughs> you know, the first, you know, 10 minutes into this movie, I, I did turn to you and go, so is the entire cast of the Sopranos in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> I mean. No, no. The entire cast of Goodfellas is in the Sopranos. <laughs> fair. That's fair. And I believe the creator of Sopranos said, I mean, this movie is you know, essentially yeah. <laughs> where we get that from that. Um, I, my favorite is probably the fact of the poor mailman. Who's the one that has to take, <laughs> you know, not the school, not the dad, not even the kid. Like, no, the poor male guy that just brought the letter. He had no idea. So I'll make it credit. It really lets you know the code here. Well, we can't beat up your dad, but right. the guy who delivered the letter to your dad, <laughs> his day is coming. Mine is always um, when the guy is shot outside the, the shop and, and Henry uses too many aprons and he gets yelled at. <laughs> Right. Because I'm What's also... What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? There's like eight aprons on that guy. Like, honestly, I get it. Because, like, first off, blood doesn't come out of aprons easily, as we all know. Second of all, there's, you know, there's an element of, like, did he... I mean, he was already bleeding. As long as he had one, he probably would have been fine. You know, it's those little life lessons he's yeah. being taught. <laughs> I mean, we get so many... Great quotes from this movie. And, and it starts off even when, you know, Henry's young. You know, we get the... The, the classic Jimmy line of never rat on your friends, always keep your mouth shut, right? Like, yeah. you know, the, the two things you need to know. <laughs> Which, I mean, you know, I think in so many ways there's, like, so many subsections to their code, but I think in many ways it really just comes back to that. Like, yeah. it's, 
That's yeah. really the two requirements of being involved here. And also, as we later find out, like, don't kill a maid guy. Like, right. <laughs> it really should have been rule number three. That been, right. First rule of <laughs> good fella. Um, <laughs> I do love that, you know, Henry, after his first pinch, everybody just comes to the courthouse to celebrate him. I mean... <laughs> Isn't that, like, so the moment that makes you love everyone that, like, it's the first time? Like, he's in so much trouble. Like, he he almost went to jail. And they're like, ah, this is great. It's right. like your initiation. And I think that's what, you know, we, we, we're going to talk about it, like, a lot, which was, you know, what's so nice about this opening is it's so quick-paced. It's, you know, the cuts and the thing. And you get excited with it. Like, you understand why Henry falls in love with this life in a weird way immediately. Yes, because... It is so enchanting. Like, think about, like, even the introduction of, like, Jimmy the Gent. Like, he's just in that bar. He's handing out money. Like, he's a little bit older than... Although, it's, like, funny because they're... Like, I feel like De Niro just, like, doesn't age throughout the film, obviously. (laughs) But, like... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Tommy and Henry seem to age real quick, but yeah. also we're pushing how young they're supposed to be when they show up. Oh, 100%. Like, that's what when I love Leota about those. Show up. That's what I love about those De Niro's. I get older and they stay the same age throughout the entirety of the film. Yes. But I love that moment, and that's like a funny, like, so behind the scenes thing. So, like, De Niro, like, very famously did not want it to be that Jimmy the Gent was handing out, like, the prop cash. Yeah. <laughs> so he made, like, one of the production assistants, like, go out and get cash and then like he would hand it out to people and then nobody could leave the set until all the money was like recollected <laughs> it was like five thousand dollars yeah it was a lot of money. of money like he had like a wad of cash and like so it's just like those funny things but i think about like that introduction to him is he already feels like mythical like he already feels like the coolest guy in the room the name is great because i think what the name helps to hide is kind of like the rage beneath like jimmy the gent like you know he's kind of not the one to mess with but like you do get that sense of like you know why he becomes such a central figure in the film and i think why he can become like such a favorite character in this because like you know for henry and tommy they're just like they're the they're the come-ups but like jimmy's already like pretty established in this life and you know you get that other great line in here of like the i belonged i was living in a fantasy so there's this sense of promise and belonging and kind of what it means to be a part of this and someone to aspire to you want to be like jimmy the gent i think is like the thing that we're given he sees the key thing respect like yes you know and of course he fall you know he he wants to to befriend him i mean he's devoted and he's got his back yeah you see all of that and which moves us into so we get you know um the bar i most want to hang out at uh the bamboo lounge right i want the bamboo (laughs) lounge to exist in my hometown Yes, I 100% agree with you. I think anytime we go on vacation, we're trying to find a place that looks like the Bamboo Lounge. I mean, like, essentially, we were just up in Boston, and we went to Shore Leave because it was tiki-themed when we were in Chicago. We always go to Three Dots and a Dash, which Three Dots and a Dash might be our closest (laughs) to the Bamboo Lounge. Like, there is such this, like sense of i mean it's like so like locked in time of like like the style that style yeah. of lounge but so much for the bamboo lounge not really existing for a long time in the <laughs> film you have probably one of the most iconic scenes and i have to think it's one of the scenes you probably knew from the film even before you saw it yes yeah i did yeah completely did it hit and land so it phenomenally? Does. Yeah. yeah, I love. I agree. I think there's probably three scenes you could talk about to me that are my favorite in this movie. There's one that's definitively my favorite, and I have a feeling you're going to know exactly what that is. You know, but this would be a very close second. Just 
you know, in style, um, you know, just going through all of these characters is, it's a really cool way to introduce you to the world in brief moments, you know, but you still kind of know exactly what's happening. You know who, you know, not that we know these people personally, but you don't need to give more, right? Like, it's just a really cool introduction to everybody that we're going to be dealing with throughout the film. Well, because it gives you a sense of the ecosystem, that there's, Mm -hmm. like, a lot of, like, there's, like, one main guy, and then there's all, there's kind of these, like, fractional pieces that that make this, like, organization run, and that most of the guys that you're kind of getting introduced to and you're just getting their, whatever their, like, nickname is, that's all you kind of really get with them, that's all you really need in order to like have a sense of who they are but kind of reminded me like the first time we took me to a Tassi family function because there was like 50 people I had to get introduced to like (laughs) it really felt like that in a lot of ways and what I love so much about the sequence is like you know the whole funny thing it gives you everything you need to know about Tommy in his like wild unpredictability of like who he is as a character and what's great about this is you know and this was a decision made by Scorsese is that like so Joe Pesci obviously knew what he was supposed to say and Ray Liotta knew what was going to be said but no one else did so like if you watch everyone else (laughs) in the scene it's really interesting to see how shocked they looked by what's happening and like Ray Liotta I mean plays the scene beautifully because like you see entirely in his face like this wait hold on this is like my best friend (laughs) am I about to get killed like I'm scared like there even is this like uncertainty, but I mean that's really it was great acting, but like the the, the background extras and and then the people the featured extras who were like at the table had no idea what was like, yeah, like coming. Such good tension in that because uh, you just yeah, like you said, you know Ray Liotta not knowing you know Henry's like this is a guy I've known forever, but still doesn't know <laughs> which way he's actually going with this is so good. No, and that's you know, and I think what's great about like to- Tommy's like energy is like so frantic throughout this entire thing. Like it's so it's it's a frequency that I don't think anyone can vibe at without like probably passing out after like five minutes. Like, but he's it's even like in the scene outside the bamboo lo- lounge, like a short while later, where they're having they're going to set the bamboo lounge on fire for the insurance money, and they're in the car, and he wants to go on a date with this girl, and like just how he's trying to convince like Henry to do this, it's almost like it's almost like he's vibrating. Like right. that's how <laughs> kinetic this energy is. It's like, you almost see like his whole body is like into it's such like a great performance by Joe Pesci. I mean, yeah, Joe Pesci is just, he deserved, uh, we're going to talk about Oscars later, but I mean, just this role, this portion alone. And like you talk about like the wild cardness of him of going this whole part, which is so tense. And then, you know, you find out it's just a joke if it was or not, you know, and then, just moments later, he ends up smashing a glass on top of, you know, the guy's head who just is looking to get paid his money. Like, honestly, kind of his fault for asking. Yeah, it wasn't great in front of all the other guys. No, like, I I wouldn't need to know anything about mob culture to tell you you need to do that in private. (laughs) And even in private's probably a bad idea. Well, because I thought that was the really funny. And then, like, the fact that he goes and he tries to get protection because he you know he's worried about Tommy as he should be Tommy's terrifying um and the fact that he goes to Paul and is like you know and he keeps saying like I mean no disrespect I mean no disrespect but he's also like you know being horrible about Tommy the entire time he's like trying to ask Polly for help like it's just like really great but at the same time it's like you kind of can't blame this guy for being terrified but what ends up happening is they end up like sinking his business 
to the point where like he has no like he thinks this is his way out and it totally is not i'm trying to figure out was that a setup what do you mean by having him like by having tommy react that way yeah does does paulie know what they're like is henry setting you know that guy up I don't think so. I think you're supposed to think of this as like, I think they knew that they would get a lot of money out of this, but I don't think they were necessarily looking to sink this because I don't think from what we see in the film, it doesn't look like anyone's planning like 50 moves ahead. And I feel like that's a 50 moves ahead plan. Maybe I'm wrong. And if you have watched the film many times, you might be like, no, there's very clear evidence that like, because Ray Liotta does look like a little like kind of smug when he's talking and a little... Like, why would you be, you know what, now that we say this, because, like, why would you be sitting with a guy who's complaining about Tommy? That doesn't seem how, like, that trio rides. Right. Um, yeah, so he interesting. kind of, like, still feels like he's, yeah. I think plotting. at least Henry is plotting. Yeah, of going. Well, yeah. I, I see where this is an opportunity. Yeah. Which very well could be, because he doesn't dissuade Polly from taking it. He mm. kind of encourages oh, him yeah, that, like, certainly. this is the best move. So maybe there's something to that. And then, you know. The best part of the movie enters Lorraine Bracco as Karen. <laughs> I, I'm, I swear I'll stop doing that at some point. No, I won't. I'm going to do it with the rest of the podcast. <laughs> it's not my favorite, though. What? Because the in the Bamboo Lounge, we get introduced to my favorite character. Who's your favorite character? Frankie Carbone. Why is Frankie Carbone your favorite character? Um, because Frank Severo, who's in The Wedding Singer, and I only ever knew him from The Wedding Singer as... <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's right. The brother-in-law <laughs> who's in this movie playing this part. I can't, I, it's just every time he's on the screen, I laugh. I if feel you've like, ever seen The Wedding Singer and you've seen that guy in that part, I mean, I won't quote, there's like a very, it, never mind. It just, it's not something I want to quote on the podcast, but he is, he's pretty hilarious in The Wedding Singer. But I have to really tell this quick story because I was laughing in my thing. He actually ends up suing the Simpsons. Why? Because in 1991, The Simpsons did an episode called Bart the Murderer. And I guess they had a character in there that he felt was his likeness. Because of the hair? It's definitely because of the hair. It has to be that hair. He's so not wrong. He's trying to sue The Simpsons for $250 million. Oh my God. For using his, you know, looks and mannerisms. <laughs> so, um, I, I'm actually not sure how the case ended up going. I have to assume that it got thrown out, but uh, just hysterical to me. No, that is pretty fantastic. <laughs> and can I tell you, I did not think we'd be talking about that character this much, if I'm being completely honest. Like, I remember you cackling the first time he came on screen, like, in the theater, and I'm like, why is he? Oh, that's right. It's the guy from The Wedding Singer. And you like really being enamored by this and then cackling again the second time yeah, we watched yeah, it. Got you. So, you know, it's on brand. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move us to the Yeah, Copa. you should go back to Lorraine Bracco. <laughs> I agree. Lorraine Bracco is just a vision in this movie because she reacts to everything 100% how I think she should react to everything that's happening to her. I mean, like from her. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> she should put a gun in his face. <laughs> He had a side piece I with was an apartment. Say, after he pistol whipped the guy, and then he came over and was like, "Hey, hide the gun!" And she was just like, "Oh, that's a turn on." <laughs> you know what? Like that's the thing. But it's like so she's so honest about it. And I think like that's the insane part. I'm not saying these are how I would feel if you like showed up with a gun and was like, "Hide it." But like also the fact that she's like, "You know what? I don't mind that at any of my friends they would have run." But you know what? I was like, "Meh." Right. Let's see where this goes. But here's why. And I'm going to tell you there's a key reason why she was motivated to do that. Front row at the Copa and Dom every Friday. 
Who's not signing up for a life of crime with those amenities? Like that whole sequence when, and then he kissed me is playing and she is taking him or he is taking her through the back of the Copa to the front where they put down a table with a white tablecloth. And that one chick looks so irritated because she used to have the best seat in the house. And now she no longer has the best seat in the house because the table's like plopped in front of her and they bring out the little lamp. I mean, that whole sequence that's my favorite sequence in the film. It's mine too. Is it? Yeah, absolutely. What Do you know saying. earlier when you said you'll know, I'm like, I mean, I think so, but that feels you pressure. You know, I'm a sucker wrong. for a tracking shot. You like, uh, just the way that they, you know, have him go through the back and going through the kitchen like that. You just like everything you're saying. I agree completely. Like you understand why Karen falls for him immediately. Like just the charm and the way that he just floats through everything and like, you know, seeing everybody and everybody's talking to him and, you know, you get in there and you have people that are complaining because they're not getting seats and he's literally having tables moved in just for him. Just phenomenal. I mean, you, you understand, you understand why she stays with him and why she falls in love with him. Well, and because too, it's like, it's that allure of like one, like, it, and you know, if you don't know this, like the Copa was like a massive deal, like, you know, in that time and to have that access, um, do you know why it's filmed of him going through the back? Um, I, I, I believe I understand. My thought would be it's to portray like him, kind of coming from like where he did his means to kind of get there. So a hundred percent, I think like thematically that's yeah. what's happening. They wouldn't let him film the tracking shot through the front. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. So I, all right. <laughs> it's like a hundred, it's like a mechanical. And also to it, it's like, so I believe this it, is what I love about, you know, like trying to, you know, dissect films, you know, and things or sometimes it's just, you know, Kevin Smith always talks about how when he shot, uh, you know, clerks in black and white and how people were talking about, you know, all of the aspects of why he did it and all this. And he just goes, it was just because it was the cheapest way to do it. You know, I just love the fact that I'm sitting here trying to be like, well, it's because this is how Henry grew from, you know, back to all the way to get to the front of this world that he's in. And it's like, nope, just they just wouldn't let him in the <laughs> Scorsese in the front door on this. Well, and part of it, too, like and I if I understand also, it has to do with like the length of like where he would have been going to like in the coat, because if you see where that like front entrance is, like once they turn, you wouldn't have gotten that beautiful tracking shot. Like it would have been a very short tracking shot. But I think also, too, it's all of that like recognition of like what occurs like as he's going through. It's like the people who know him. And then it's like, you know, and they use real people in it. It's like, cause I think it's, it's Bobby Vinton who sends them like a bottle of champagne yeah. over to their table. And like, it's just like really cool to see. And then obviously the Copa features again, like later in the film, um, not, and not, and not as fun of a way. Um, cause at that point, like, cause things are kind of falling apart or these characters are being really revealed to you. But like, I think like that sequence is kind of, I think in many ways, like the most like kind of enchanting. And I think like one of the last really enchanting things that happens in the film where you get a sense of like why you would be able to overlook or agree to or justify in your mind that this life is okay. Yeah. It's kind of like that last point where you're like, or even like, I would say even like the wedding sequence when you're getting introduced and all that money. Cause yeah. I love that moment when Karen's like, wait, where's the purse? And he's like, yeah. what? And she's like the, the purse with the money. He's like, nobody will take that. Here. Right. Like, <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and everybody just, you know, just, yeah, feeling like she's got this family, and, and she's now, the way Polly treats her in that wedding scene, I agree with you, it, it's no wonder why she feels like everything's okay, and she's obviously overlooking some major aspects of things. Well, and I think it's not even, like, overlooking, because, like, it's certainly not... Like, I think probably when they first start dating, I don't think she has a sense. Like, when they go to the Copa together, I don't think there's any... You're not, I don't think, supposed to think that she really has an understanding of, like, what lifestyle he leads. But but it's not very long after. I mean, because when he highly justifiably pistol whips that guy in their neighborhood, like... At that point, he very easily had access to a gun. You have to start to have some questions, and he tells you to hide the gun. I feel like these are things that are, like, it's so natural to him. And then, like, she does just kind of get, like, you know, sucked into this life. And I think part of it is is because, you know, she has that great, and this is one of the things I love. I love that there is the decision to have Karen have narration as well, um, because I don't think you needed to do that. Um, And I don't think anyone would have thought, like, hey, why don't we hear from anyone else? But I think it's so important to understand it's like the person who aspired to and wanted all of this and the person who kind of got thrust into it because of love, like, and then getting to hear her thoughts, because I think we could interpret when she takes the gun of going, oh, she doesn't really want to, or she's scared, or she's confused. But Karen's narration is like, no, no, I'll tell you exactly how I'm feeling. How I'm feeling is thinking, that's kind of hot that he gave me a gun, Yeah, you know? It's different. Yeah, you're talking about that. And I was curious what your feelings were on that with the narration, which narration obviously gets so talked about on whether it should be in film or not. But I'm laughing in my head a little bit because I agree with you. I think it works tremendously in it. I love it. But, like, we talk about the brilliance of the movie, but, I, you know, if I sat there and I told you about a movie and I'm going, you know, there's at least three to four tone shifts of the film. There are... Um, freeze frames throughout. There are multiple narrations. (laughs) Uh, Like, just some of these things that, you know, most of the time would not work with another filmmaker, and it's just again, kind of, you know, I know we're waxing poetically a lot about Scorsese and why not, but like, he makes these things work that I don't know in the hands of somebody else trying to do the same type of thing could pull it off without it being cheesy. But I completely agree with you. That's why Scorsese is Scorsese, because like there is a sense of who else could do this and who else could get us to agree to this and and feel like this makes sense. And like also to create enough spaces for empathy that like, even though once you have made Henry like truly detestable, there's still like that little like, all right, at least I'm glad Henry's alive in the end. Like, you know, (laughs) that there are those spaces for that and that you can have both this incredibly beautiful tracking shot through the back of probably one of the most iconic nightclubs in New York City ever. Um, But then also have the brutality of what comes not much after this, which is the sweet lounge and, you know, the murder that, you know, starts off this film, you know, so that you can have those things exist and they both be filmed really well but be tonally so different is really remarkable. I agree completely. You know, with that tracking shot that they, I believe it was four takes they had to take on it. Eight. It was an eight. Yep. My understanding is almost everyone was because a very famous comedian who comes up at the end 
kept missing his mark, right? Yeah. It's so, and like, and part of the, you know, because if you think about it, it's like, it's just so funny to think about because it's like, it's been, you know, the Copacabana doesn't exist anymore. So like it has been, you know, now memorialized in this film, but this really like interesting, not the way most people go into it. And, you know, and, and the fact of like, the amount of details and movement that's happening in that sequence, the fact that they got it after only doing eight takes is kind of insane. But the fact that one person kept messing it I up, know, right? it's like, you don't want to be that guy in the tracking shot. Um, but also you're welcome to our audience that I have not sang Barry Manilow at least once during this discussion on the Copacabana. Thank, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for being considerate. Because I think me yelling Karen has probably been enough for everyone. Um, you know, and you have like these other great moments that happen even before we get to that sweet lounge sequence. And they really come from Karen's perspective of her like saying like, you know, we're not married to nine to five guys. Um, you have that t- the Tupperware party from hell. Um, oh, right. So grotesque. <laughs> and like, and I love like, Karen understanding like there's an element of her that like doesn't fit in with these women who are clearly like hardened by this life and they hate their kids and they kind of hate their husbands and they kind of already know their husbands are cheating on them. And you're like, you know, and it's like this really unfortunate predictor of like, Karen, you're going to kind of look like them by the end of the movie. You just don't know it yet. And Lorraine Bracco is just like disgust. And I think worry in that moment, but like, her overwhelming, like, love for this person. Like, this is in somewhere weird way is, like, a really great love story. Really twisted love story. Yeah. But- yeah, because I do think in the end we are to take that Henry really loved Karen. I mean, he was horrible and a jerk, but, yeah, you know, I, I do think that there was... <laughs> Weirdly, yeah, I think he's devoted to her. And I think, like, also, too, like, this, yeah, well, all right, yeah, all right hold on. De- devoted emotionally, yeah, yeah. you know, but not monogamous, for sure. But I also think there's, you know, you have that great sequence, too, of, like, and this is something I think, again, would feel cheesy in any other film, but works so well here, is, like, you have that montage of pictures, like that slideshow, where it's, we all went on vacation together. If we, you know, if we go to the islands, we all go together. We have dinners together. And it's, like, you understand, I think, from Karen's perspective because she's like entering this life for the first time of like well why doesn't that feel great it's such a sense of community and belonging and and also like I think we can all agree like of all of I think the wise guys that have ever existed in cinema like Polly Cicero is probably the most like redeemable and lovable (laughs) of them all he never feels villainous to me like not the whole film like I'm never like ah Paul's because I think how Paul Sorvino plays it is the exact reason why this lifestyle probably seems so enticing of like, look at this guy who he's he doesn't seem violent. I mean, I believe him to be tough and I believe him to be threatening. And I believe probably that's hidden from us pretty much the entire film. But at the same time, like he seems like just a guy who seems really kind and like wants to take care of people. So it's like interesting that the person who's obviously leading this is never seems like the most detestable in the movie, which is like weird in itself. So you get like why she's so enchanted by all of that. You know, it's crazy because Paul Servino, I guess, really didn't want to take the part. He didn't think he was menacing enough um, for it. And I guess one day he walked by a mirror and saw himself and said, all right, I think I can find this this character. Oh, 
I feel yeah. bad that he thought that as he walked by a mirror. <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm like, right? hey, I look menacing today. <laughs> yes. But he's, yeah, he's really good. He's, he's doing so much with, with, you know, not doing a lot, but in that doing so much. And then kind of going really quick back to the Karen with, Lor- I think Lorraine Bracco, uh, again, this is another character that I needed to reframe the second time watching it. And I see how good she is. I didn't have a lot of. What's her character name again? Karen! There you go. Thank you. <laughs> um, I didn't know a lot with her other than being, you know, in The Sopranos. Um, she's so good. But I did have to think to myself at one point, if this movie was ever remade, that that Lady Gaga would be terrific in that role. I don't consider myself a mortal person, <laughs> but I am fair. Watch House of Gucci. <laughs> All right, maybe that is fair. She's literally already played Karen, so it's fine. So if you want to watch, if you want to see that imagined reality, because no one should remake this movie, just watch House of Gucci. So she had, I I would have to think somewhere Lady Gaga was inspired by this performance in that way. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Yeah, which so this takes us into kind of like the next shift in the film, which is the scene at the suite lounge and the murder of Billy Bats. Um, I just have to ask you, is he justified? <laughs> Which one? Billy Bats or Tommy? Tommy. Tommy. Way, I'm very happy we can do a whole episode talking about a character with that the name of Tommy and be right about it. <laughs> 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 I feel justified and I feel like we can put that one to bed at, at this point. You just made me laugh in a way that I think I looked like the Ray Liotta gif from I, mean, the- I really wish I had been, you know, thought of this enough to just call him Tom the entire podcast. <laughs> Don't bring up painful memories. <laughs> um... Well, I, I think I wrote in the notes or I looked at you at one point and I went, ooh, this feels the most, like, relatable scene. Oh, because I'll say it, Tommy is literally a Tossie. <laughs> he really is. If you if you want to know what it's like to cross a Tossie, just watch the Sweet Lounge sequence <laughs> when he yells, go home and get your shine box, and he just, like... He, you <laughs> Absolutely. And then just him just going, keep them here. Keep them here. Yeah. And you're like, and I love when like, you know, so Billy Bats like tries to like reason with him. And then Jimmy just very slyly is like, you insulted him a little bit. 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 That is one of, I mean, in the oeuvre of Robert De Niro, that's my favorite Robert De Niro moment. Because there's Uh just how he does it is cool as anything and also like you completely know without a doubt that he is already prepared of like we're going to be killing him very soon oh my god that that is my favorite part I, this sounds really demented and again maybe again we shouldn't make the joke so much about the tossy thing but but it does feel real like i love that there's never a spoken thing between jimmy and tommy but the two of them know exactly what's going to happen. And Jimmy essentially assists him without ever knowing. Like, he just right away goes, oh, it's on. I got your back. There's no pause. <laughs> it's like, it is 100% of like, and I do, because I think as soon as, like, Tommy leaves, Jimmy knows, like, okay, we're going to be killing him. I think Henry has no idea. No. Henry's clueless, as you per usual, honestly. But I think that's also, like, Jimmy obviously rides a lot harder for Tommy than he does for Henry. Like, you know, but I think it's like he knows that he's going to kill. And I love, like... You know, so in this moment, you have this, like, you know, big violent action, and they kill they kill him. And then I love the moment when Tommy is, like, the one conciliatory moment is, like, I didn't want to get blood on your floor. Yeah. 
Yeah. It like hurts a little and I'm sad for him. And I'm like, I just watched that guy violently like premeditate and murdelate that dude. But I still kind of feel bad for him because it feels like a sensitive moment of like he feels bad. Yeah. And now you have this whole big cleanup, which gives us just. I mean, they tried to, I mean, they tried to warn Billy Bats. I mean, what was he expecting? He, sh- he needed to stop. And like, that's the thing is like, and again, it's not to compare it to Tassie's too much here. It's just like. You need to read the room. He had had enough. You got what was coming to you. You did kind of deserve right. everything that happened little thereafter. Bit. A little bit. A little bit. Um, and, you know, so we, and I love then the, the real gift we get from this is the appearance by Martin Scorsese's mother at playing Tommy's mother. Yeah. And they go over to the house and she just like doesn't really ask a lot of questions <laughs> About what her son is clearly doing. <laughs> Just like, I need a knife. Yeah. <laughs> and she wants to know if it's going to be brought back. And then she, like, in great Italian mom fashion, is like, I need to feed you guys. Which I just love... Like, I will never achieve this in life, but I just love the fantasy of people who just constantly have food ready to go if someone comes over late, that they're just like, I'll heat you something up. Me, I'd be like, I'll get Grubhub. What do you right. need? Like, like Walmart's just, still delivering yeah. this late. You got 45 minutes, maybe an hour. Like, but I love that she, like, cre- like, they get all of this food out. And, like, you can tell it's interesting. Like, Henry's the only one kind of unnerved by what's going on. Like, Jimmy and Tommy, like... And I just, I think you're supposed to imagine well, like, it's I not mean, the first time you know, this together. That being Scorsese's mom, but playing Tommy's mom, I mean, the two of them just work so well off of each other. They're so loving. Like, you do get some humanity to Tommy because he genuinely loves his mother and you see it. Um, you have the great painting. Oh, I know. <laughs> you know. I want that painting. <laughs> but I think it speaks to the difference between Henry and these two, right? Like, these two who didn't think twice about, like, you wronged me and I'm coming after you. And now are sitting here with a body in the trunk, knowing they need to go and, and take care of that. But they're just eating the meal like nothing. Just laughing and talking like nothing's going on. And Henry trying to keep himself together. Is a really, you know, neat way to, to start to, like we talked about earlier, like this is where we started the film at and this is where the film starts, you know, these characters bond, these characters' lives start to unravel from here. Well, and I also think it gives you a sense of like who's more entrenched in this life and who's kind of living this life a little bit more because I think there's a sense of like I think Henry is a little untouched and a little wanted to skate by and some of the dirtier aspects of this you get the sense that he really isn't as you know I think it's interesting like he's clearly very indoctrinated into this life except it seems like the violence or the kind of dirtier actions that come with us seem like something he's not totally comfortable with. And I don't even think from a moral standpoint, I think pretty boy doesn't want to get his like hands dirty. Like I think is really what it comes down to. Like, I think he sees himself as a little above it. Yes. Like I think he, I think you get the sensors. He feels better than Jimmy and Tommy. He wants the perks of the life, but he doesn't want to get his oh hands yeah, dirty. and I, I, you know what? I think that's a better distillation of what I'm saying. It's the he doesn't want to have to do those parts of it, but now like he has to, and so you get them having to go bury the body. And now we get to see, which I just I want to make a pitch for this. Score says he would have made it a brilliant horror director because when they're burying that body, yeah. that how that shot, he would have made one hell of a horror film. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. I mean, one could argue Shutter Island is close to it. You're right. It's psychological horror. So yeah, I guess we have gotten that 
reality. It was just something about that shot is like so beautiful and haunting. And, you know, and then you can, as you talked about earlier, we get like another tonal shift because now we start moving into what will be like kind of Henry dabbling and then fully going into kind of like the drug trade and then also like the setup for the Lufthansa heist. Yes. And before we move on to the Lufthansa heist, I do want to just say just for legal purposes, uh, the Tazis don't murder people. We um, <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, just want to make sure I get that out there. But but we will. <laughs> I, you know what? I really appreciate you making yeah. that clarification. <laughs> we do have each other's backs and we will, do. we will come at you if you wrong us. Yes. Or wrong one of the other ones. That's yes. 100% the truth. I also. And, A and loyal that, people, I yeah. would say. <laughs> Um, you know, and it's, you know, you get these, you have obviously like the cleanup from that. And actually I should say before we get to Lufthansa, cause we obviously have him going to prison. We also get the introduction of like Friday nights or, or at the Copa or for girlfriends, which now we get to see that like, unfortunately all like the married men in this life have a second life. Um, Henry seeming to be the most severe because I mean, his girlfriend gets an apartment and how he is balancing that with, having two kids at this point and also having a girlfriend who you're apparently spending a lot of nights with is kind of crazy. I don't think he was balancing it well. (laughs) Oh no, no. And I think like there has to be some sense of commentary here baked in. I think of like the notion of like the unsustainability of family units where you essentially have like, you know, Henry has his own family, but then he has to have this like kind of like side family, like with this like girlfriend who, you know, essentially is setting up like a wife. I mean, like he has, there's some sense of domesticity to that apartment and like their life together in that space. But I also think too, it's like the family structure of like the mob because that's how it's treated. It's a family structure. So until it's like not, because you have essentially here, like eventually you have that him go to jail. Um, you know, so it's, and this is after, well, of course, we have another great Tommy outburst, though, before that happens. Oh, Spider? Oh, my God. Poor, poor Spider. Poor Michael Pirill. <laughs> like, I mean, it's a great scene, but it also, like, it lets you know that Jimmy's, like, truly devoted. Because he gets, like, mad at him, but there's no retaliation on Tommy. I love the bookends of this. I mean, not in a, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is where we just know how horrible Tommy is. Like, there's no cutting it at this point. Like, you talked about Billy Bats. Did Billy Bats have it coming? Yeah. Spider definitely did not have it coming. I mean, my favorite line of that whole thing, on the first end of it, when he shoots him in the foot, and Tommy goes, oh, so I shot him in the foot. Like, it's a big effing deal. (laughs) Well, then even, like, later, when he kills him, he's like, good shot. What do you want from me? (laughs) Like... How dare you blame me for being so skilled? Dude, he's a tossy. Like, just seriously. 100%. But, like, there is, like, there there's this, like, true sense of, like, one, there's nothing, like, Jimmy won't do or kind of have to excuse for Tommy. But also that Tommy's so untouchable. I mean, obviously, until he's not. But, like, up until this point, you get this sense of, like, Tommy can get away with anything. Because, I mean, he just killed a kid. Yeah. Like, in front of all of them. And... There's no one even thinks to retaliate or thinks about, like, the consequence of you just murdered this kid. Wait, Roma, the consequences is he had to bury him. That's what well, Jimmy says. Yes, he did. <laughs> yes, almost like, all right, well, you shot him. Now you got to bury, bury him. Right. That's the deal. Like, I'm like, not doing it. 
But it's also like the insanity of this moment, too, is that like you think like, well, I mean, essentially what he just killed was Henry. Like, that's what Spider is. Like, Spider was Henry on the come up. Like, but there's not I don't know. It's just like really interesting to see, like, almost like the mentorship that they were afforded when they were Spider's age. They ended up not affording the Spider's generation. Like they they almost like didn't want to take him on in the way of like, let's protect him and make sure he's okay and cheer for him the first time he gets pinched. No, let's shoot him in the foot and then bury him. Like, it's kind of crazy in that way. And then you have, you know, finally, so we have like the first time we're getting to see you know, jail life. I mean, I don't know if you even want to call this going to jail because, I mean, they have better dinners than we have any night of the week. (laughs) We don't cook that often. Are you going to start cooking with a razor blade of cutting the... (laughs) That's because that's how Scorsese cuts the the garlic. There's actually a detail from Wise Guy that that's how the garlic was caught and cut. And that's like why... Because it's interesting, like, there wasn't... the, The contact was interesting between the between Henry Hill and the cast. So Henry Hill talked a lot to Robert De Niro because Robert De Niro wanted to know, like if Jimmy the gent did this, how would he do it? Like little tiny mannerisms, like down to like how he ate his food, like everything he wanted to really know him. Whereas like Ray Liotta stayed distant from Henry Hill, like in the development of the character, which I think is like interesting of like, but they had such access to all of these details and they knew that about places. That's how he cut his garlic. This is the now second Scorsese parent. Uh, His dad is in this scene. The cook with the onions that's putting too many onions. That's his dad. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, look at that fun fact you just threw Mm. out there. But like, I also think you, you know, the, this, those scenes in the kitchen kind of make you feel like, oh, okay, this is sustainable. Everything will be fine. I'll just kind of go back to normal. But there's this real disillusion that comes out after they're in prison. You start to see where the breakage is just happening. Like Karen is like, Polly won't even talk to me. We don't have money. They have to move out of their house. They're like living by the time, you know, Henry gets out of jail, they're living in, you know, an apartment, which is different than, you know, what her established lifestyle was. And like, so it's interesting to see how quickly it feels like, well, you're in prison, so we kind of don't know you. So it's like Karen doesn't get taken care of. So it's like, all you think about like all those trips and all that bonding and everything. But when it really came down to it and they were in a dire set of circumstances, it's like, well, we don't know you right now. Because it's that fear, I think, yeah. of like, well, if he talks, then we really can't we know can't, you. Yeah. Which then you get another like unifying sequence, which is the Lufthansa heist, which is something that's been kind of like, you know, gradually hinted at in the film. You know that there's like a kind of the airport and the things coming into the airport have already been fodder for their criminal activity. But the Lufthansa heist is going to be like the big one. And it finally does happen. And it justifies for all of us why we can consider this a Christmas movie. Yes, exactly. Add it to the list. Die Hard and Die Hard 2, which also came out in 1990. Oh, so Christmas movies abound this year. Home Alone. (laughs) We got all in 1990. But yes, I, I, I think... So my understanding is that legitimately was the biggest heist. Yes, it was. At that yep. time, at least, of all time. So, um, and this is where, yeah, everything really, again, starts, especially with Jimmy. Jimmy just starts to get real paranoid. <laughs> and you can't blame him because I think there is this real sense 
of this is like the biggest heist and it's the most high profile thing we did. And this is the type of mark where it's not just like the normal things we've been doing in the neighborhood, like fleecing local businesses or trying to grab things off of a truck. This is like major people are involved. And I think like the worry being they're so watched at this point and his paranoia is something we get to see reflected later on with like, obviously the day that Henry, you know, finally really gets caught, but Jimmy's already there. Cause he feels like this is pretty imminent. And it's this great sequence of like him getting increasingly angrier and angrier with every person that's coming oh, in with like stuff. He thought that a pink, was it a pink Cadillac? That yeah. <laughs> Would be suspicious. That's a beautiful car. <laughs> well, he's like, I brought in my mother's name, and he's like, that's, yeah, no, that's not, this is the opposite of, and then your boy from The Wedding Singer comes in, and his wife's got the big mink coat. Right. And he just meekly just does, oh, we gotta go. Yeah. <laughs> he takes her out. And it's like, you can't, and then, it, and, but it's funny, because you see, like, Henry's awarded something different, because he gives Henry cash. Of, like, here, take this. And Henry gets that big, ridiculous, like, white Christmas tree, and, like. Right. But I think this is. This is where we get a classic, a Scorsese needle drop. I mean, when you have Sunshine of Your Love playing, <laughs> with Jimmy the Gent just sitting there smoking that cigarette and this just most medicine. I mean, this is this is what we're talking about at the beginning of the show, right? Which is De Niro doing so much by doing so little. Like, he, you just see the change. I mean, that's filmmaking at its best for... What is it? Three second, four second, you know, just him. You just know everything's changed. Well, because he's at a different headspace now. Well, in a different headspace than everybody in the scene, because I think in so many ways, everyone's like, oh, what we've won. This is the end of the movie. Like, Mm. but he's like, no, 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 no. There's like a long road for us to be okay." And you get the sense of like, it's the way he looks. And again, it's just such a cool moment with De Niro, just how he plays this and how he looks. I mean, he looks amazing in this moment. And it's just that like. He's he's not he's no longer just paranoid about Maury. He's already plotting to kill Maury. And I kind of can't blame Maury's annoying as all. Maury is the worst. Maury, how Maury doesn't get killed earlier in this film is really remarkable. <laughs> like it's a I needed him for something and now I can kill him. A uh, fun fact with that though, did you know the with a commercial of Maury that Maury does is the only thing that Scorsese didn't film. Oh really? Yeah, he ended up he wanted it to be as authentic as possible, so we went and he got somebody that did those types of commercials to to direct a commercial so that Maurice commercial came on earlier. And you know what? It does feel very authentic. Yeah. It's like super cheesy and overly repetitive. That's the thing. Maurice is one of those guys that you're like, I, don't, I mean, nobody should get what happens to him, but at the same token, it's like, what did you expect? You kept trying to basically strong arm, you know... This guy that you know is not a good person. No, and like... and. And it's, you understand that, like, even the people who are cooperative, it's like, at this point, it's like, Jimmy's just so out for himself. And I also think, though, it does kind of, like, forecast, like, where he stops trusting Henry, because, like, Henry's not in on Maury getting killed. Like, that in itself, like, lets you know that there's been, like, a tide has turned. And it's like, he's still taking care of Henry, but he's not, like, inner circle. Like, and it's... And I, I think the, you know, kind of the sequence of seeing the wreckage of like, this is what has to happen to protect ourselves is really intense because you realize there's kind of like 
the code is kind of gone. Like those guys didn't need to get killed, but like in his head they did because you have that great, it's, you know, Layla playing as we yeah. start to see like all the bodies and it goes into the, like the frozen meat truck. And then you're seeing. My boy Frankie Carbone, man. Frankie in, Carbone. In the frozen meat truck. Or uh, what is it? Roast beef was the one guy, right? Yes. He's the one that had the Cadillac. Yes. Yeah. And like, yeah. And so you have, and that's like a great sequence and like a really like, I think great transitional moment of like how score says he uses the music to kind of score. Cause I think there's so much about like Jimmy, Jimmy's look and Tommy's look. And I would even say Henry's that feels like crystallized in that like good fellas era that they got entered into. They still kind of look like of the fifties and sixties, even as we're starting to creep into the seventies. So I think having those music beats is so important because it lets you know the transition that's occurred. Um, you know, cause there's even something like very mid century about like, even when they're in the bar celebrating the Lufthansa heist, like the music that's playing the way the lighting is. So like, I think having, you know, having, um, sunshine of your love and then having Layla played, it's like, it's a transitional era, like not just like by decade, it's also by like what's happening, like in this group in particular, it's just such a smart thing. And then like you have, you know, what can be. I don't know if you call this heart wrenching or justified or it was, you had to know it was coming. Um, you know, Tommy's death. Yeah. Yeah. So sad. <laughs> is it though? No. Like, it, but again, that's, he deserved it. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, they play it in a really, I mean, Jimmy looks legitimately. Oh, it's yeah, heartbreaking. Heartbroken. Yeah. Um, and again, De Niro playing that scene so well, I guess they could only take the scene once because he actually kicked over and broke the uh, phone booth <laughs> in that scene. Poor defenseless phone booth. <laughs> Had no idea. Um, yeah, and just Tommy's moment of going, oh no, that brief second of the realization that he knows exactly what I has just know. happened. And I think it's like sad because his mom is so sweet and like it's this weird thing. His mom seems like somewhat unaware of what's going on but also seems to know he's getting made. Like... And it's supposed to be this big moment because, like, although Jimmy and Henry aren't untouchable, once Tommy gets made, it's, like, this extra layer of, like, it's finally happening to one of us in that way. Like, you know, the whole thing with the the phone call. And then, like, you get that narration from Henry going, and that's that. We had to sit and take it. Like, or I think it's sit still and take it. Like, the idea of, like, we couldn't do anything. Like, we're not... Even though they've been just as equally as entrenched, just, you know, just as involved with all these criminal dealings, well, you're still not. Like, it just tells you, like, the biases that exist, like, even within that world of, like, well, you're not made. I appreciate the mob on this one, though. Oh, okay. All right. Interesting stance. You've been wronged. Uh Uh-huh. You know what? May not do anything about it now. Everything may be cool, but don't worry. When the time's right, that's coming back up. Is this your way of saying you keep receipts? Because that's how it's sounding. It's <laughs> how it's sounding. <laughs> but I think there's like, you're right. There is this like, why did they wait so long? And it's like, well, because like they can because they're the mob and yeah. they waited until it was a time where they would have opportunity. And then like the detailing oh, of right. like shot him in the face so the mom can have an Savage. open casket. Oh, it's that's rough. So rough. The poor mom, like you said, the poor mom who doesn't, you know, has nothing to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, because you do. You kind of feel for because, I mean, and I think knowing it's Scorsese, you might be like, oh, sweet little Miss Scorsese, you know. But then, you know, this, you know, so you have that. And again, like, again, like we talked about, you brought this up so importantly at the beginning of the episode, these transitional tones, because now we get kind of a day in the life of how he gets caught. In Sunday, Henry. May 11th, 1980. Yeah. So you have, like, there's something interesting about, like, 
you know, the, the start of the eighties, you know, being that this moment is when it happens and like how like awful Henry looks. And it's like, you see that like, you know, and Paulie warned him, like there was this real sense of like, you know, don't get involved in the drug trade. Like, and you get like, this isn't, this isn't part of the business that we do. There's a lot of other stuff we do, but this isn't it. And you see like how drug addiction has taken over Henry's life. He's not able to think clearly. Um, his drug runner honestly feels like she should be in an SNL skit. <laughs> I find her hilarious and really lackadaisical about the fact that she's a drug mule and that she's just like, yep, this, sure, casual. She's like, I need my hat. My lucky hat. I need my lucky hat. <laughs> I don't blame her. I have like a Dumbo stuffed animal flight time pal. Like, I get it. You need your things when you fly. But it's just how like... She's like, I'm not going to every other time I've been fine. And like, you also get to see like at this point, like how like coked out like Debbie Mazar is like there and Karen, like well, I was gonna say, everyone. I think that's a nice touch to, to put Karen in this now. Like she's not innocent in all of this. Like she's in this world just as much as everybody else. I, I think this is the scene where the first viewing for me was was off-putting like i didn't quite and then to realize no you're trying to put us in the headspace of a paranoid coked out mob individual yeah. like and feeling all of that and he does it so well and the way you know and i love that you know kevin corrigan who plays the brother you know i'm liking michael brings him back in and he's got to stir the the sauce or the gravy the gravy the gravy thank you <laughs> The whole time. That's right. For like 12 hours. Well, because that's what I imagine. Yeah. Like, he's like, I'm getting picked out for a day out, but I'm not. My coked out brother is going to be running errands and I'm going to be stirring gravy. And I think what's really cool about the scene is you don't know if he's being paranoid or if it's really going on. No, not <laughs> until he gets caught. You really don't. Yeah. Was your experience the first time watching this? Like, did you sense this is how this was going to end? With him going into, like, witness protection, like, this kind of buildup? Okay, so I did know that. I knew okay. how it ended. I knew he ended up, you know, in that. So that part wasn't a surprise to me. But how it all played out was. Okay. All right. Because I was curious. The first time that you watched this, did you like this segment of the film? No. Okay. I didn't. But now, on a second viewing, I have completely flipped and love it. And I think that's a common experience because I think there's something about this that because of like he wants you in that like coked out nervous perspective, he does it so well that when you watch it the first time, and I'll even say sometimes I'll repeat viewings like I'll, I'll be honest, if I stop on Goodfellas and it's at this part, I don't know if I'm sitting down to watch the rest of it because this part's not fun. No. There's, it's not, it's not like, kind of like, what the hell is that? Yeah. <laughs> like, what's going on? I hate this because like, and the thing is, is like you see like, Again, it's like it's that breakdown and that erosion of loyalty, that sense of like protective barriers that you thought may have existed because you were like in with this crew, like don't really exist anymore. That, you know, the way in which his mind has been so turned by drugs, like, you know, the I mean, it's really a PSI. It could actually be a very effective <laughs> PSI, you know, but On that a very special <laughs> good fellas, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but like there's the sense of like you understand that like Henry kind of can't go back. There's kind of, there's only like a few ways out. He's either going to prison or he's going to get killed or he's, you know, the third mystery option, which is he's going to go into witness protection. Um, I do have to ask you, do you think, because this is something I toil over every time I watch the movie, 
Do you think Jimmy was actually going to kill Karen? <laughs> um, oh, it's tough. It doesn't look like there's anything going on in that room, and it doesn't look like those guys are prepared. But Jimmy does, I mean, I have to leave. Is it the hand motion, though, around yeah. the corner? and he just keeps kind of, just keeps going. Why doesn't he walk with her? He's like, busy. He... <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to lean towards he was. I, every time I watch the movie, I feel differently. I feel, I, I, I get every, that. Every, and it nags at me because yeah. I'm like, I want to know. And, you know, <laughs> there's uh, obviously very famous, like, podcast rewatchables. They always have, like, the unanswerable questions. That, to me, is the one. And I know someone probably feels very firmly out there if you're listening and you're like, no, definitely this way. Every time I watch it, I feel different. Every time I'm like, yeah, he's... But it's the fact that they, they're not prepared and they don't seem aware that she's coming by that makes yeah. me think that he wasn't sending her there to be killed. Right. I mean, but maybe his he wanted, but they weren't prepared. I mean, they didn't know. And I think some, it is in the moment he wants that because I think he has that conversation with her. And I think when she's not giving him the answers that he's, you know, looking for, yeah. she's not giving him these clear answers that he need in his, you know paranoid mind at that point needs to hear i think he makes a you know decision at that moment that you know she's gonna be collateral damage like everybody else well and also like i'm gonna say like jimmy's not wrong like dude turns state's evidence like i he's not wrong for feeling paranoid that henry was gonna fold well but the argument is though does he turn when henry or when jimmy brings him to breakfast and he realizes jimmy's going to kill him either way because he doesn't yeah, that's true. after that that's a fair point like he kind of sees the writing on the wall yeah. of i'm gonna get killed yeah i mean that's it's fair i i don't know maybe i just want to see jimmy the gent differently maybe the the, the surname helps me to feel I differently we talked about this at the beginning we're not supposed to like these characters oh no we're yet. not supposed to like these characters <laughs> we're not supposed to be rooting for them. they're all terrible we're supposed to be rooting for the outcome Again, that happens not good people uh so the interesting note the uh the u.s attorney that they talked to is actually the U.S. attorney that, yeah. that you know brought them in and essentially was like trying to help them was just like I'll, I'll I can just do it myself like and just started basically reenacting a lot of the dial like that actually happened. Well, I love that the line of "Don't give me the babes in the woods," the babe in the woods act because it's the truth. It's like Karen, don't act like Karen. <laughs> like don't act like you didn't know what was going on. You're coked out. Like stop. Like and I think that's like a really important thing and even funnier that it's the actual person because they got to be able to like probably live in that space and remember what it was like, like trying to convince them and like her not realizing that like yeah going into witness protection program it, it, no one you don't get to see anyone like you're making a choice because the option the very real option here is that you're going to stay behind and end up getting killed um i kind of feel bad for paulie when he's getting put in prison because we all know that's the last place he wanted to end up at the end of his life and he tried to separate himself from Henry. He did. And then unfortunately, you know, Henry's terrible and is a rat and like, you know, and obviously sells them all out. And then you have the ending where he's just like, I'm an average nobody. And that's like it. Like, he's just like, obviously sobered up somewhat. Still doesn't look totally healthy. It's just in the burbs, which is everyone's nightmare. And <laughs> he's just an average nobody. <laughs> So as a person seeing this for the first time, who's a lover of Scorsese's work, but not necessarily of like mafia movies, like what's your overall takeaway from this film? Well, I think the overall take is it's again, I, I said at the beginning, and I'll say it now. I think it's his best 
Um, I really do. Um, I, I, had you asked me previously, it would have been the Aviator. I believe now that I see what the hype is on this, I think it deserves all the credit that it gets. I was also surprised to realize watching this how much Paul Thomas Anderson um, takes from Scorsese, you know, and, you know, is influenced by Scorsese. Um, there was so much of, you know, I, I saw with, with Boogie Nights uh, and a lot of his other works uh, with this. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting that I, you know, watching this film compared to some of his others. Um, I thought it was interesting to know we talked about this being this you know, kind of this love story. They did not make it. Henry and Karen did break up in yeah. real life <laughs> um, and got divorced. And essentially, Henry could not stay in the witness protection program and eventually got out of it because he just kept wanting to get back into some type of that life. Well, it's like he got arrested in yeah. like, was it in Oregon or was it in Washington? I don't remember that part. It's one yeah. of them. But no, I mean, it's just, you know, it, it, it's you have one of the all-time best making one of the all-time best films with just a, you know, phenomenal cast. Um, you know, I'm surprised Leota never kind of has another film quite to this level because he's so uh, charismatic and he's so handsome and he's so great in this movie. Like, he just hits all of these boxes that you need. Um, and then you have Pesci and De Niro just at the top of their game, which say something for two of the all-time best. Well, and honestly, I'm glad you bring this up about Ray Liotta. So interesting or interesting coincidence, I guess. We were supposed to release this. We were planning on this episode actually before he passed. Yeah. Um, and we would have been, we would have released it maybe only like about a few weeks after mm -hmm. he passed away. And when you look back at his film, like he has so many iconic roles, but I agree with you. There's something about this, which makes it like really remarkable. He was not nominated for an Oscar this year. Not that everything is about the Oscars, except in my <laughs> mind, but it's interesting. He's not even nominated for best actor. And like this film doesn't work without a performance where this guy who is really detestable and obvious and even by the standards of the people he associates him with ends up being like a really horrifying person at the end because he does the one thing you're not supposed to do or the two things you're not supposed to do. He makes him understandable and he makes him, you understand how this all happened because of Ray Liotta's performance and the humanity that he gives him. And even when he's being like horrifying and cheating on his wife, there is still something almost like redemptive there. And it's just such an incredible performance. And I agree, like, De Niro's phenomenal in this. Oddly enough, De Niro actually gets nominated for Best Actor that year, but for Awakenings and not this, <laughs> which is weird. Right. Um, and, you know, you have, you know, Joe Pesci, you know, is nominated for Best Supporting Actor and wins, gives the second shortest acceptance speech in the history of the Oscars when he does win. I guess um, my understanding is allegedly he didn't think he would win, so that's why he didn't have a speech prepared. Did you look? Have you ever watched the video of it? I have. Yes. Yes, have it's yeah. great. Actually, yeah. so okay. Um, the one day um, you were at work and in, and in doing research for this, I actually went and I watched the the telecast from that year. <laughs> it was on YouTube. Uh, they, there's like segments that weren't there. Um, one. Man, if you really want a time capsule, watch the opening numbers of Oscars of Fast. <laughs> right. Not great. Um, real, like, real cheese ball. Um, but it was, like, cool to see him because, like, the reaction in the crowd was great and his reaction was so genuine and, like, the way he lit up and kind of was like, I guess, it's almost like this, I guess this is happening, you know? And it's really kind of incredible, but that's kind of it for Goodfellas that night. 
Yeah. It's like so sad. Well, was it even nominated for Best Picture? So um, when you look at, so it was nominated for Best Picture and it was nominated for Best Director. So okay. Kevin Costner wins for Dances with Wolves and Dances with Wolves wins for Best Picture. Yeah, back to um, Dances with Wolves. Yes. people, we would come back around. So Best Picture race that year was Ghost, uh, The Godfather Part 3, Goodfellas, Awakenings, and Dances with Wolves. Um, and then... I don't know why I'm shocked to know Ghost was nominated for a Best Picture. Well, and here's the interesting thing. Like, obviously, I've been talking, like, a lot tonight about how much I love Lorraine Bracco's performance. You know, so she doesn't win for Best Supporting Actress, but Whoopi Goldberg did deserve oh, it for yeah, Ghost. Like, it, there's no, like, to me, there... And, Oh my gosh, another, if you've not watched that acceptance speech from that night, a phenomenal acceptance speech. She's so incredible, like in that role. Um, it's It does not really get the worth of recognition that you would expect. Um, even if you look at like, so best adapted screenplay Dances with Wolves. So it is nominated, um, but it does not win. It loses out to Dances with Wolves. Like this is like really back in that time where like things would sweep um, you know, the major categories, um, you know, not necessarily always the acting, but like, you know, director and picture and screenplay world, you kind of seem to be locked up by one film. You have a tradition of that in the Oscars in many of the years. Um, this is hard for me. I, I look at this year and I don't like saying Oscars did wrong, but let's be honest. What has withstood Goodfellas? What's rewatchable Goodfellas? Like Dances with Wolves is, you know, this, we don't have time in this podcast to talk about Dances with Wolves, but like Goodfellas certainly should have been the recognized film that year. And I think that's shown over time. And I think it's shown by the fact that they had, you know, Coppola and Spielberg and Lucas be up there to give Scorsese his Oscar for The Departed because there was a presumption of like, it just has to happen. It just has to happen. Yeah. yeah. We were just talking about that or we were just looking at something with that recently, which The Departed really did deserve it that year. Um, but obviously Scorsese should have won it, you know. Many years, ninety before, times before, all of yeah. Other ones before. Were you surprised the Godfather Part Three was nominated for Best Picture as well? I mean, such a maligned film. Now I, I can't. I, I don't have any recollection of it at the time of the of the reception of it, but I was a little surprised to see it up there. Yeah, I, I have to say, like. I think there is like a completionist approach to probably how the Oscars was looking at the Godfather. I mean, the other two had been nominated. So the third one might as well have been, I don't know if I'd have to go back and look at reviews. And I think that would be a fun thing to do to see. Was it as maligned at the time? I believe it was from a fan perspective, but I don't know if critically, if it was getting as much like criticism. And I also think, you know, certainly like the Godfather and the Godfather part two were so massive. There might've been just, but I mean, it's telling that dances with wolves takes a lot of the night. I still think, I don't know. It's like, it's hard for me not to see Goodfellas as what should have won uh, that year. But, and I think I now it would have dances with wolves being such a phenomenon at the time. It was, like, it was massive. It was, it was a film that everybody was talking about. And it has that sequel avatar. So <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of sequels, um, we're at our prequel, sequel, remake, reboot Boo. portion of the show. Listen, I'm not going to get into all of that. Obviously, none of that's true. But there is, do you know that, I'm going to call it an unofficial sequel to this movie. Okay. It's actually, actually, I believe it came out the year before um, or the, the around the same time. So I didn't realize this. The movie My Blue Heaven yeah. with Steve Martin and Rick Moranis. Yeah. It's actually based on Henry Hill. <laughs> so Nora, it's a Nora Ephron movie, which who, she was friends with Henry Hill. She was friends with Henry Hill. She was married to um, Nicholas Pelleggi. Yes. So weird how this all gets connected. Yeah. Um, 
But anybody that knows My Blue Heaven, and obviously when I'm throwing out Steve Martin and Rick Moranis, you can understand that it was definitely a comedy, maybe leaning into dramedy, but it's essentially supposed to be about Henry Hill's time in the Witness Protection Program. You know, obviously a very heightened version of that. So just found that really interesting. And I believe it either came out the same year or the year before, um, you know, Goodfellas. So just a really interesting. So you have your sequel to Goodfellas. More comedic sequels to Scorsese films. I want to see the comedy follow-up to The Departed. Wait, everyone dies at the end of that. Spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, that's kind of fantastic. What a brilliant thing to have existed. Well, thank you everyone so much for joining us for the premiere of season five. We have a lot of exciting stuff uh, up ahead. Please follow us on social media at How Could You Podcast on Instagram at How Could You Pod on Twitter. You can always send us thoughts, suggestions, and musings about our episodes to How Could You Podcast at gmail.com. Please check out our YouTube channel, which I will link in the episode notes for this. And we look forward to bringing you some more amazing episodes up ahead and filling some gaps in film knowledge along the way. And until next time, enjoy the Odyssey. Thank you.